the uh, leaders of uh, the church here in St. Paul's, and I've got the great pleasure of uh, chairing the event this evening. For those of you who've been to a speaker's corner already, you will know uh, the familiar format. We have a speaker. Uh, we then have a generous amount of time for questions and answers. Um, and then after that, there's uh, informal discussion uh, over some refreshments that have been provided. Just um, going to now introduce uh, Tom Darwent, who's our vicar, who's going to welcome you on behalf of St. Paul's Church. Yep. So welcome to St. Paul's, everyone, uh, especially if you've never been here before. It's great to have you with us. Uh, just to let you know a, a few uh, practical things, uh, there are toilets both uh, where you came in, uh, just along the corridor there and at the back, and also uh, emergency exits there and there. So uh, head to the nearest one should you need to, though nothing is planned, so it's very unlikely to happen. Uh, you might have noticed some rather strange kind of uh, silhouettes in various uh, seats. This is all part of a a sort of countdown to Remembrance Sunday, the There But Not There uh, campaign. So feel free to sit at one if you want to, but uh, that's what they're there for. And um, I'd just like to suggest as well that, that mobile phones are, are turned on, off or on silent. And uh, I'd love just to pray for us now before Justin speaks. Father God, thank you for the way you've, you've used Justin uh, to warn people about uh, gambling and its dangers. Lord, thank you that you've taken uh, difficulties in his life and produced an opportunity for him to help many, many people. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would uh, speak through him, uh, speak through our discussion as well, and uh, whatever you want us to take from tonight, Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, allow those things just to sink home. And, uh, Lord, that you're you would use this uh, event tonight in any way that, that you see fit. Amen. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. <coughs> I first became interested in gambling uh, when uh, we invited Justin to uh, come. A little bit about him later. But ever since then, I've been collecting newspaper uh, articles uh, on the topic. The first came after the World Cup uh, when... Uh, we were told that when ITV uh, was showing uh, World Cup matches, if you added up all the betting adverts that there were in the half-time interval, it made 90 minutes, which is another game of football just on advertising uh, gambling. Then uh, gambling, firm sponsor, gambling firms sponsor 17 of the 24 championship sides. Gambling aware fears tipping bite point has reached for young supporters. Then the head of the National Health Service castigates foreign-owned betting companies for not contributing to the £10 million fund that pays for addicts' treatment while leaving the already overburdened health service to pick up the pieces from gambling-related mental ill health. And only yesterday when Americans were buying their lottery tickets for the £1.6 billion prize, the news comes that the average annual sum spent on the lottery, only on the lottery in the US, by people who earn less than £10,000 a year is $600. $10,000 of which 600 goes on lottery. So this is a, an epidemic for us and... Uh, I'm very glad that um, we have tonight uh, Justin Rees-Larkham, 
who's somebody who has experienced the epidemic for himself. And uh, he's going to talk to us about his personal experience and also about some of the lessons that we should learn for our society about the nature of gambling. As I say, after he has spoken, he'll speak for about three quarters of an hour, and then there will be the opportunity for questions and answer and discussion. And I hope you'll be thinking through the things that you want to have raised that perhaps haven't been touched on uh, already. Um, there's a few more housekeeping matters, like the fact that uh, there are books on sale, and I'm allowed to promote them. It's not appropriate for the author to promote them, uh, but of his personal experience. And uh, uh, Justin, it's, uh, it's terrific to have you here. Thank you so much for coming, and I'll hand over to you now. Thank you. On the 17th of August 2013, five million people woke up and bought a copy of the Daily Mail. Some of them would have opened it up and seen this double-page spread and read how this ex-army officer could squander three-quarters of a million pounds, losing his home, his job, and his wife and children. When I looked at that, I was shocked to see a picture of me looking back. And I thought, I need to tell my eldest son. He was 12 years old at the time. Uh, we went for a walk, uh, and I sat down with him. I said, Harry, there's something I need to talk to you about. I gave him that newspaper article, and quietly he read it from top to bottom. When he finished, he looked up at me. He said, Dad, you mucked up. Don't do it again. That's been inspiration for me, but I want to share a story as to how that could possibly happen. I had so much. Why would I have possibly have my eye turned by an addiction to online gambling that took three years from start to finish? My first ever bet to my last ever bet. And I'll never take that freedom for granted. That newspaper article was a good few years ago now. But every day that goes by, I have to be careful. I noticed this week that GambleAware have announced that the helpline numbers, the people calling the National Problem Gambling Helpline, have gone up by 50% in five years. And the proportion of young people that are calling in is much higher. I've got three children. My heart goes out to them. Where does my story start? Do you know what? My story starts here. In Camberley, on the day when I drove through the gates of the Royal Military Academy, I wanted to fly. It's all I ever wanted to do. And the army were going to be mad enough to teach me to fly. But first, I had to get through Sandhurst. Before I arrived at Sandhurst, I made a decision in my life that I was going to follow Christ. I'd become a Christian at quite an early age, um, and my faith was very important to me. As we pulled up in the car park, my mum gave me something. Sometimes I bring it. I didn't bring it tonight. Perhaps I should have done. It was a book about that big, quite small, called Living Light. Some verses you can read in the morning, some verses in the evening. It's the kind of thing you can put in your pocket when you go away on exercise uh, and you can look at it every day. She'd written on the inside, um, we realised that from time to time you won't have time to read your Bible or be able to carry it. So we thought you might like this. As an officer, you'll be responsible for the lives of your men. But as a Christian, you'll be responsible for their souls as well. And every day that went by, 
I read that Bible, the living light. I read the Bible, I had a relationship with God. I guess you could say that I was living in the light. And I want you to remember the theme of the light, because I do try and bring that into the story quite a bit. But then, on the day that I went through Sandhurst, I was living my life in the light. And what they tell you to do at Sandhurst is be a grey man. Fade into the background, don't stand out, don't do anything badly, and whatever you do, don't do anything well. Just blend into the background and get through your time. Unfortunately, that wasn't an option for me. Um, After a couple of days of arriving, there was a commotion uh, in one of the corridors and I went to see what all the fuss was about. And everyone was gathered around the notice board. And there was a little note at the top saying, rugby trials this Saturday, if selected, Wednesdays off training. So all 411 people in my intake turned up for the rugby trial. And because there were so many of us, um, they invited some of us to come back the following day, the Sunday. I gave it some thought, and the next morning, plucked up all my courage, and I stood in front of the officer commanding rugby. That was his title. Officer commanding rugby. And he was taller than me. He was a lieutenant colonel. He had bushy sideburns. You know what? He even had a monocle. And I stood there, and I was scared. I said, sir, I can't play rugby today. I'm a Christian, and I want to go to chapel. And he didn't bite my head off. He just smiled. I later found out that he was a Christian. I didn't get selected to play in the starting 15, but I was a reserve. And on a field not too far from here, I think we were playing Staff College. I'm not even sure if Staff College is there now. The college next to Sandhurst. We had a game over there, and after about two minutes, the person in my position got injured. I went on, I played the best game of rugby I've ever played. Within just a week, that same colonel came up to me and said, Justin, we'd like you to be the captain of this side, the Academy First 15. That was a real honour for me, because the commandant loved his rugby. He used to come and talk to me on a, on a Wednesday morning and ask me who we were playing, ask me who'd been selected. And I think I must have been the only officer cadet he actually knew by name, because at the end of my time at Sandhurst, when he had to decide which officer cadet would graduate top of the intake, he chose me. And at Sovereign's Parade, I was awarded the Sword of Honour, Um, And it was a day that I look back on with so much happiness and pride. My mum was there to see me being presented the sword. It didn't all go to plan in the army, I've got to be honest. You know, I said I wanted to fly. Um, Well, the flying bit was okay. I could do that, no problem. I could do aerobatics and I could do nice, neat turns. I had a small problem. I couldn't actually land. And so I knew I had one more chance to put the aeroplane down on the runway, otherwise I was going to be chopped from the flying course, uh, and I nearly had a mid-air collision. I had my head in the cockpit, wasn't really looking where I was going, um, and I got invited to go and see uh, the commanding officer, and he said to me, Justin, before you kill yourself or someone else, you need to find another regiment to go to. Now, I was dealing with some anger issues here. I had all my life wanted to be a pilot. So when someone whispered in my ear that if I joined the Royal Artillery, they shot aeroplanes down, I joined them instead and felt much better. I went straight from Sandhurst to Northern Ireland at a time in the early 90s when um, it was quite difficult to be um, a soldier in South Armagh, in the the bandit country of the the borders with Northern Ireland. Um, But I had great fun in the army. I loved it. I volunteered for everything. I had a parachute role. I volunteered um, for the all-arms commando course. I was a thrill seeker. That's a bit of a theme that you might kind of recognise coming through here. But when everyone else would go home, I'd volunteer for the patrols competition. I had a great time. I went to Bosnia. I saw some 
very interesting things out in Bosnia. The, the recent results of ethnic cleansing when different factions had fought against each other, different villages had fought against each other, and even families had fought against each other. I was driving one day with my sergeant. He was a big, burly second row in the regimental rugby team. Uh, the kind of guy you want with you. And we drove through this village, and every single building in the village, actually a village that looked like any other northern European village, had been raised to a pile of rubble. And when we got right to the top of the hill where the village perched, there was a school. And we saw a brick wall where the children would have played and thrown their balls against. And it was riddled with lines of bullets where they just laid the children out. I looked over on the drive back. It was quite quiet. And I could see my sergeant was crying. When we got back from that tour, we didn't have the opportunity to talk about what we'd seen. The army is a much better place now. I, I love going in and, and sharing my story in, in the military environment. And I know that, that they have mental health nurses. They, they have an opportunity to sit down and talk about things that you might have seen on tour. In those days, to talk about it was a sign of weakness. So I bottled it all up and took it with me on the day I left the army. Having reached the rank of major at the youngest possible age, I got frustrated because someone told me I wouldn't make colonel for at least another six years. I was restless. I wanted to get on. I was always thinking about the next thing. And when my friends had left the army and told me these great stories of how much money they were making in the city, I thought, great, I'll do that too. And I left having led 460 men on this operational tour into Bosnia to being the junior T-boy at an insurance brokerage in a place called Hitchin in Hertfordshire. Everyone fled at five o'clock at night, but you'd still find me there with my books, studying when everyone else had gone. Sometimes I'd stay there till nine o'clock at night. And the only people left in the office at nine o'clock at night would be the cleaning company and the managing director. And he came over and sat down next to me and asked me what I was doing. And I'd say, I'm ambitious. I want to catch up. I don't know anything about insurance. I know nothing about business, but I want to learn. I was living my life in the light up until that time, always putting God first. Two years later, I'd been promoted, was one of the youngest managing directors of a division of a financial services company. I'd married the girl of my dreams. We bought a house together. We had a lovely son, another one on the way. We had nice holidays, nice cars. Everything on the outside looked great. And when I had a six-figure salary, I said, I've made it. Lord, thank you very much. I'll take it from here. I took my Bible, I took my living light, and I remember putting them in a drawer down by my bed and closing the drawer off. I didn't stop believing in him. I just pushed him away. And that's when things started to go wrong. There's a picture I want to show you. Um, I'm not sure how well you can see that, but it's taken on the bay, um, on the Isle of Capri, and behind me is the bay of... of um, uh, of Naples, and, and maybe you can see behind me, just coming out of my head there, out of the heat haze, it's Mount Vesuvius, the volcano that erupted in AD 79, destroying Pompeii. You see, in my head, I had a volcano. When that picture was taken, and over the next three years, that volcano was going to erupt catastrophically, destroying everything I'd come to know. I just want to run through some pictures with you about what life was like. Some of them will go through quite quickly, especially that one. Um, we had nice holidays. Uh, Emma was um, literally my best friend. 
I would never have dreamt of lying about anything with her. Uh, we went through thick and thin. I keep rolling it forward. Um, yeah, we had nice things. We had a, a lovely lifestyle. If you thought life on the outside is the most important thing. And Matthew was born and, and little, little Oscar, we, we'd learn, was on the way. We'll do one more photograph and then we'll pause. Matthew, aged 11 months, wasn't using his right hand. Now, my circumstances were this. I had pushed God away and argued that I lived in a little village in, in Derbyshire. There were no good churches to go to. I had this commute down to London that involved uh, a 25-minute drive, half an hour drive into the station, an hour and a half on the train down to my office, a tube to, the, to my desk, uh, and then back again, five days a week. I would used to leave when it was dark and everyone was asleep, and then I'd come home when it was dark and everyone was asleep. But I thought that's what you needed to do in life, to get on. That commute was taking it out of me. I'd been passed over for a promotion too. I remember that and being cross about that. And we began to notice that Matthew wasn't using his right hand for anything. I said, Emma, this is odd. Matthew doesn't hold anything with his right hand. She said, oh, we've got left-handed people in the family. He'd just be left-handed. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And one morning on my way to the station, I turned the radio on. And I heard an interview with a retired footballer, Philip Neville. He was telling a story about how he noticed his daughter, aged 11 months, didn't use her right hand. They'd taken her to see a consultant. She had diagnosis for something called right-side hemiplegia. It's a form of cerebral palsy. She'd had a stroke, probably when she was um, being born. And she now had stiffness down her right side and no dexterity in her right hand. I couldn't get that out of my mind. When I got home, I said to Emma, Em, why don't we just take Matthew to see someone, just to rule things out? So we did. We went down to London. We saw a consultant. Uh, and after a few minutes of looking at Matthew, um, the consultant said, your son has stiffness down his right side. I believe he may well have right side hemiplegia. You should have a scan. On the day that we got the results of the scan, I walked into the consultant's office with Emma. And there was a picture of my son's brain on a computer screen with a great big scar. I said, what, what does this mean? She said, your son had a bleed into his brain, a stroke, probably during labour, and he has right side hemiplegia. He has stiffness down his right side, no dexterity in his right hand. And as we got up to leave, it was almost, oh, by the way, she said, and he may well go on to develop epilepsy, have seizures, or fits at some point in his life. One week later, I was at home. It's a hot day. Matthew had a streaming cold, a high temperature. He was in my arms, and his right arm started to jerk. I knew straight away what was happening. I just didn't know what to do. I carried on cuddling him. I tried to talk him out of it, to reassure him. That was wrong. It was a febrile fit caused by a very sharp peak in his temperature. I laid him in the car. We drove him to uh, what well, I was hoping to get to the hospital, but actually there was so much traffic we couldn't get through. Emma picked up the phone to call emergency services because by now he turned blue and his lips were a dark shade of purple. In the army they taught me, if you want to know if someone's breathing, put your cheek up against their face and, and you can feel their breath. I could feel nothing. And for the first time in months, I prayed. I said, God, please, I don't want to lose Matthew. Help. And round the corner, pretty much straight away, came my next door neighbour, who was a retired surgeon. He stepped in and took over. 
And he continued to give Matthew mouth-to-mouth resuscitation until the ambulance arrived. The ambulance came and, you know, he was all right. They gave him a drug that pulled him out of the, the fit and he went off. And I stayed behind and I was lost. I handled it really badly. You see, I had these selfish ambitions for my son. I thought maybe he'd play rugby better than me. Maybe he'd be able to land aeroplanes. And I had to try and come to terms with the fact that he had this severe disability that meant he would be dependent on us. Emma was brilliant. She googled hemiplegia. She, she just got her head around it. I think I went into denial. And it was only a week later that I was at home doing something I'd done a thousand, pound, a thousand times before. I, I, I put the rugby on. But this time I noticed one of those adverts. 18% of every advert on TV is gambling related. Even though there's a nine o'clock watershed, the exceptions to that are, as we've heard, live sports or bingo. And tell me that isn't gambling. But I saw one of these adverts for the first time. And maybe you could say I was feeling a bit vulnerable. I got my laptop without thinking about it. Deposited the five pounds that I needed for my free bet. And I won. I wonder what would have happened if I'd lost that bet. I think I'd have closed my laptop down. So what a waste of time. I didn't tell Emma about that bet when she came home. And I think that's significant. Suddenly I was wired up to this. I didn't immediately become a a gambling addict, but I found a form of escape from the world that was around me. A world that wasn't anymore filled with thrills. Actually was pretty boring. That commute was really taking out of me. I'd lost my accountability. I'd lost my spiritual compass by pushing God away. So I said to myself, it's okay, it's just a bit of fun. I began to gamble a bit more frequently. I called my boss and said, do you know what? Why don't you set me up at home? I I can do my work here and come into the office once a week. I'll be much more productive to you. So he did. I used to do my work in two hours and the rest of the day would stretch out ahead of me. I began to look at the papers more. I began to look at sport I'd never really been interested in. And actually, as someone who'd stopped playing rugby a couple of years before, I felt engaged again. And then I realised one day, about two and a half months after my first bet, I wasn't winning. A few problems with my character. There's lots, actually. But let me tell you about a couple. I'm an optimist. I'm always expecting the best outcome. And when it doesn't happen, I'm surprised. I'm also a terrible loser, but very competitive. Over there, in Sandhurst, am I pointing the right direction for the, the academy? I was taught that if you hit a brick wall, you work a way round it. Never give up. Those aren't good traits for a gambler. I calculated one day that I'd lost about £750 over the course of two and a half months. So I said to myself, that's it, I'm going to stop. But first I'll win my money back. There was a tennis match coming up. I was convinced I knew who was going to win. I put £1,000 down on the outcome of this tennis match. I'd never placed anything like that much money before. I was shaking when I placed the bet. I thought, if Emma comes in and sees this, I'm going to be in big trouble. I lost that bet. And the first thing I did was call my bank manager, arrange for an overdraft and put another £1,000 on the next match. I'd stepped over a line. I'd gone from being someone that just has an occasional bet to someone who now was in the grip of something. I'd lost control. And there was a hole in my finances. Oh, I didn't want anyone to see that. 
I didn't want anyone to ask any difficult questions. I was a successful businessman. I was a, a good husband. I don't want anyone to know the truth that I had a habit. So I hid things. And one of the difficulties of this horrible addiction, and it is recognized now as a pathological addiction on a par with heroin addiction, back in February 2013 by... Um, the medical professionals, um, is that you can hide it. There are no outward signs, no physical symptoms until the damage has been done. So I hid things. And that meant I had to lie to Emma. I'd never lied to her before. Actually, it's quite stressful when you lie. You've got to remember what you lied about. And even the stress of doing that was something that helped, made me go back to the comfort of my computer with the door locked, thinking... It's okay, I can win my money back, put it all back, no one will know. It'll be okay. I had highs and lows. When I was winning, I was up here. When I was down, uh, I'm losing. But Emma could see those mood swings. And do you know what? She thought it was her. She thought it was my job. She thought it was the fact that we lived in the the town. She knew how much I loved the countryside. So when someone knocked on the door and said, "Um, we'd love to buy your house from you, we walked by every day and we'd love to give you a good price for it. We we took the money uh, and I put it into my own account. We moved out to the countryside into a rented property um, while we uh, looked for somewhere to live. It was Emma's mission to find the perfect house. So six weeks in, uh, I'm upstairs uh, on my computer in the room I used as an office and I looked out the window on a gorgeous spring day. I could see Emma walking up the lane. When she got to the window, she shouted up. She said, Justin, I found it. I found the perfect house. Come on, come with me. So I went with her to the end of the lane and there was a lovely Victorian brick wall and behind it, I stepped into paradise. A beautiful cottage with gorgeous views and the lady that lived there sadly lost her husband she wanted to move quickly to be near her daughter the price she was offering was really good it wasn't even on the market I desperately looked for a way out there was a little pond in one corner there was no more than a puddle I said look Emma we can't live here Matthew might fall in and drown and that lovely smile on her face just dropped The truth was nothing to do with a pond. I'd squandered the equity from the sale of our house. And by now, to cover up, to continue to live in the way that we've always lived, I had begun to borrow money. Emma looked time and time again at lovely houses. I went with her. We we might spend an hour or two hours walking around while she'd choose the bedrooms for the boys and uh, and plan everything. And then at the end, I'd dash her hopes by saying, but you know, we can't live here. It's too near a main road. Or the garden's too big. Or the garden's too small. There's no good schools in the area. The reality was that I'd already got myself into debt. It was my pride that stopped me from putting my hand up. My pride that said, don't tell anyone. Get yourself out of this problem. And that's why it got worse and worse and worse. My bets got bigger and bigger. The time I spent gambling was more and more. And this is a complex addiction. It's got two sides to it. The more you do the physical thing over and over again, the more habit-forming it is. But there's another side to it as well. When you place... A stake, and it's not about the winning, it's not even about the money. When you place a bet that you cannot afford to lose because you need it to pay a debt or to do something else, you get this enormous rush 
of endorphins in your brain. Just like you do when you exercise. And your brain tells you, I like that. I want some more of that. And it's such a difficult addiction to break away from. And I'm not saying at that stage I was addicted, nor am I saying in any way that it wasn't my own fault. As the first year turned into the second year, things began to get really bad. But all the time I covered up. I began to get so creative about covering up. One day, Matthew had a letter from school. They said, we think your son needs to go and um, have uh, an assessment for autism. He has some traits, some character traits that are quite autistic, that would be on the spectrum. So Matthew got a diagnosis, sure enough, for autism. One of his characteristics was that if he said something, or in his mind he wanted to do something, it was very difficult for him to break the chain and to do something else and on one Sunday when it was raining outside Matthew looked at me and said daddy please will you take me to the swings we were down at my in-laws house we'd had lunch and at the end of lunch Matthew said again daddy please take me to the swings you see I've withdrawn as a dad withdrawn as a husband Matthew just wanted a bit of time with his dad so Emma said oh go on take him but can you just go home first and pick up his coat so I put Matthew in the car. We drove a couple of miles back to, to my house. Uh, I left Matthew in the front, strapped in. I walked into the house and put my hand on his coat. And then I remembered. I placed a bet that morning. I thought, I'll just go and check to make sure that the money's been credited into my account. Then I can go and have a nice time with my son. But I'd lost that bet. And my emotion was one of anger that someone had taken my money, that someone had spoiled my afternoon with my son. So I did a stupid thing. I went to the place that you really never, ever want to go. I went to the online casino. I thought I'd have a quick game of roulette. I win that money back, black or red, that I can go and have a good time with Matthew. Two and a half hours later, I'd emptied out my bank account again. I went downstairs uh, to the car and Matthew was asleep. He'd cried himself to sleep and the tears he'd cried were dried on his cheeks. What kind of a dad was I? Only one who by now was gripped with something I'd lost control of. And I was making decisions which at the very best were illogical. But in reality were quite insane. Emma went to the fridge one day, about two and a half years in. I knew there was going to be a wreck. I don't know how long I could sustain this pretense anymore. I, was, I was, had a six-figure salary. I was a director and a shareholder of my company, but I had so much debt. By even halfway through the month, I was struggling to move things around, pay the bills, and also have my money to gamble with. I'd be staying up late saying goodnight to Emma, and for hours and hours into the night, uh, little Oscar, by now born, was teething. I, 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 he'd be crying in the middle of the night. I'd say to Emma, don't worry, I'll, I'll, go and, uh, I'll go and look after him and get him back to sleep. I'd pick him up out of his cot, go into the office, put him on my lap, bounce him on my knee while I turned on my computer and played roulette for as long as my bank account would allow me to. It backfired a bit one day because uh, one morning uh, we were all watching TV um, and uh, there was an advert, and it had a roulette wheel on it. 
And little Oscar said, look, mummy, it's daddy's work. Um, I, but of course, would have had an explanation that I could have ducked it and got away with it. Emma opened up the fridge one day. There was no food. It was about five days before payday, and I had no money. But we still went to Sainsbury's, and I got to the checkout counter. I took out my wallet, and the only thing I had to pay was my corporate card that I could only use for work expenses. I paid for the groceries, saying to myself, it's not stealing. I can pay it back at the end of the month, and if they ask me before then, I'll say I got my cards mixed up. But it took two and a half months before my company found out. And in that time, I realized that that corporate card worked on my gambling account. When I pressed that button, I knew my job was over. I knew it. I'd stay awake at night, this time not gambling. I had very little money left to gamble. I would just be thinking about what a mess I'd made. I'd listen to my wife's breathing, thinking how cruel I'd been to put her through this. And that one day, she'd find out. Two and a half months after the first transaction, my company called me. They said, Justin, your corporate card, it's been cloned. There's fraudulent activity all over it. Gambling transactions. I'm really sorry. We need to get you a new card and close that one down. Is that okay? I said, boss, they're not fraudulent. They're my own. I went into the office. Two days later, the head of HR was there. She'd laid out all my corporate card statements and she asked me to underline the transactions that were my own. £27,500 worth of my company's money. Needless to say, I couldn't work there anymore. But I don't think they knew what to do with me. I think they were embarrassed. I'd worked hard to to have quite a high profile in my niche, and I just don't think they wanted people to know. I was bundled out of the door so fast, but not quick enough for me not to hear my boss saying, and he will never work in insurance again. That would have been a good opportunity to sit down and talk to Emma, wouldn't it? And say, I'm really sorry, I have made a mess of things. That person with all the expectation that you had out of me, that's not me. I've made a mess and I need some help and I'm sorry. But I didn't say that. I told her, I've left that job, I've got another one to go to. I had further to fall. Last year, I did a TED talk. Uh, And that TED Talk now has had about 230,000 hits. A TED Talk is a 15-minute talk you do online. It's posted up there. People go and visit and they listen. Uh, And because I talked about my issues and coming through them, people get in contact with me. And lots of them will say, Justin, you found recovery. I want to know how you did it. I will do anything. Except I can't tell my wife or I can't tell my husband. I always say to them, please, please, have that conversation. Put a stop to it, but have a conversation so they know the truth. Because if they find out, you may never, ever get that trust back. Emma found out. They found a bank statement. My friends came to stay uh, and they found a bank statement on a table in, in the room I used as the office. They showed her. They said, do you know what your husband's doing? I still remember the expression on her face, pleading with me for it to be a mistake. 
I told her the truth then, absolutely everything. We sat down. Uh, I even self-excluded myself from the online gambling site that you could u- that, you, uh, that I used. And I only used one at the time, so that was okay for a little while. I called the National Gambling Helpline. I got some help. I had a couple of sessions of, of counselling. But I don't think it really worked, because by the time I was going to the second session, I'd had an email from another company saying... If you sign up with us, we'll give you a £50 free bet. And I said, a £50 free bet? That's not really gambling. That'll be fine. Do you know there are 2,500 online gambling sites that you could log into now? And if you wanted to self-exclude yourself from gambling back a few years ago, I'd have had to visit every single one of those 2,500 sites and block myself. Now I'm pleased to say that there is a one-stop self-exclusion. Moses, multi-operator exclusion system. Um, not every company signed up to it, but it's much more effective now than it was. Maybe if that had been in place then, it would have saved my marriage. Because now, Emma could see what I was doing. And one morning I woke up, and the house was empty. There was no sound of children's TV. I couldn't smell coffee. I couldn't hear them laughing at breakfast. Emma had left. And she took the children with her. Do you know what? She was right to go. Because I was self-destructing. Not only was I self-destructing, I was pulling everyone in with me. Without any income, I'd begun to sell the things in my house. I'd wake up in the morning and for the first two minutes I'd have a clear mind. And I'd say, okay, I can do this, I'm going to stop. And then after a couple of minutes I'd think to myself, do you know what, I have made such a mess of my life. It doesn't really matter anymore. And then I walked around the house, desperately looking for something I could sell. Something that perhaps Emma wouldn't notice. I sold a Breitling watch that she'd given me as a wedding anniversary. I sold some picture frames. And then I did something so stupid. I sold the most precious thing I owned. A bit of metal about this long. The sort of honour I'd been presented. I got £200 for it. When I walked out of the shop, I was crying my eyes out. That bit of metal represented everything good in my life. I was going to hand it on down and now it was gone. The next morning I woke up, uh, I phoned up the owner of the shop, I said, I've made a terrible mistake, I gave you something to sell, I need to get it back, I'm sorry, he said, we've just sold it and there's no record of where it's gone. Those times, we talk about light, I'm going to talk about darkness now, because those times were dark I can just remember everything being dark. It was November time. Uh, I probably would pull the curtains. Uh, I wouldn't go out of the house unless I had to. The only time I would go out of the house, perhaps, would be to take a bag of old clothes uh, to a sweatshop and get a couple of pounds for it, deluding myself, thinking as I walked home, that that couple of pounds, if I put on a 12-leg football multiplier, it could come in and I could win all my money back. Then Emma can come back and I'll get my job back and everything will be fine. I also began to imagine what life would be like for my children if I wasn't around permanently. And I'm pretty sure I would have committed a crime or taken my own life. And sadly, a lot of people do. But there was a knock at the door. My mum had come up from Kent. She said, uh, your father-in-law has paid off your rent arrears. He he knows the truth um, and he wants you out. You're going to be evicted. You can walk the streets or you can come back to Kent and try and find some recovery. I walked round the house with a black plastic bin liner and I put my last possessions in. 
I went into the boys' rooms. Their beds were still unmade from the day that they'd left. And I said goodbye in my mind. I was completely broken. But I needed to be. Because it had been that pride that was stopping me from getting any recovery. And now everyone knew the truth. Perhaps it would be a bit easier. I went back down to um, that spare room that I'd left when I was 18 years old. I got down on my knees. And I prayed quite a similar prayer to the prayer when I first became a Christian. I said, God, I'm so sorry. Come back into my life and mend me if you can. The next morning I woke up. I felt a bit different. There was a knock at the door. Someone had come to see me. Uh, Someone from my mum's church, um, from um, a debt charity, a debt advice charity. Uh, They wanted me to go and talk to them. And I told them everything. And I gave them all the paperwork I had. Uh, And I gave them all the, the numbers of people that had been trying to call me. And they just took the pressure off me. They didn't charge me anything. They just showed me love. And with the debt being sorted, and it wasn't great. I didn't have a job. I I arranged to pay my creditors back at £1 per month. I owed £73,000. That would have taken quite a long time. But another job came along. Quite different. After about six weeks, one that had been paying even better. And after two years of carefully paying back a penny a month, I was able to clear off all my debts. And on the day I was debt-free, I volunteered for the money, the debt advice charity. Now on a Monday night at my church, you might find me uh, once a month giving advice on people who've got themselves into debt. And I believe in this church, you also have some, something similar. Is it CAP? Frontline. It is the debt that causes the shame, the debt that causes people to take their own lives. It's the debt that gives the stigma. If you've had an issue with drugs or alcohol, it's almost easier to talk about. If you have a problem with gambling, it's a shame on you. And actually, if you go to the GP, they'll probably tell you to stop and take some pills. Actually, the reality is they understand it a lot more now. They know more about the issue. Day one, when I got home, we put some blocks on my computer, a bit of software. Uh, it's called K9, the letter K, the number nine. Um, it would have sent an email to my mum to say, Justin's trying to access a gambling site, if I tried to do that. Away from all my triggers, I could actually breathe a bit again. And in the first week, I went to my first meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. When I walked in that room, and I really didn't want to go, I thought, no one wants to hear about an idiot I've been people started to share their stories. And I suddenly felt that I had so much in common, that they were in the same situation as me. And the stories I I was hearing were so similar. I thought I'd managed to get to the end of that two-hour meeting without saying anything. And then, five minutes to go, they looked at me and said, this is your first night. Why don't you share your story? I opened up my mouth and I just cried. And at the end of that, I don't think I said anything. They came up to me, they put their arm around me and they said, don't worry, you're in a safe place. We've been here before. That meant so much to me. And every week I wanted to go back and tell them, I hadn't gambled. See, the thing for me is that when you become an addict, you don't ever become an addict by ambition. You don't ever decide one day, do you know I'm going to become an addict? That's what I want to do. It happens because what you do as a human being to get through life, when you have moments of hurt, when you have moments of pain, you reach out for something to make that pain feel a bit easier. 
The problem is for us as humans, a lot of those things are actually quite bad for us. And if you are a certain kind of person, perhaps you might well go on to form a habit or an addiction to that substance or that experience, or whatever it might be. I really feel you have to replace your habit with something more wholesome. And for me, as a Christian, with my faith to fall back on, I found that my faith was able to replace my horrible addiction. Not only that, it was better. It was more fulfilling. It was more wholesome. And actually, if I fronted up to it, the problem wasn't even worse the next morning. It got slightly easier. I began to read my Bible again, to look forward to reading it. I committed each day to God. I fell back into the routine of living in the light. It is that thing, that one thing, that helped me the most. And when I go on TV or do something on the radio and they say, so Justin, what was it? Um, what, did you, uh, what did you really find most helpful in your recovery? And I will always say, my faith in Christ. And I felt forgiven. And I felt he still loved me. Now, if it's a pre-recorded program, they'll edit that bit out. But if it's live... Unlucky. That's my story. And I'm quite proud of that. I don't mind talking about it. Because that was the reality. I felt forgiven. Maybe it took me a bit longer to forgive myself. But I felt he'd forgiven me. I began to see myself in the way that God sees me. Someone who's loved despite all my flaws. And here by the grace of God am I. Can we run through a couple couple of shots? couple of slides. It's okay. I just want to share with you some of the things, some of the features of, of my recovery. One of the big ones, obviously, was my boys. Um, spending time with them again was just wonderful. I'd get in an old battered Honda that someone had given to my mum, drive up the M1. Sometimes I'd just spend a couple of hours with them, and that was it. And Emma could see. She could see that I'd changed. She could see that I had moved on. And that I wanted to spend time with my boys. And so for a while, she came back home. I say for a while, I wish I could tell you that she moved back in and we were a family again and everything was fine. But the reality, the truth is that there were consequences of my sin. And after nine months of trying really hard, it's okay, we can go back one from that. Emma gave me uh, the divorce papers that I'd signed months before. And she said, I'm sorry, but I just can't trust you again. That's why I always say to folk, please tell the truth. Front up to it. Might be painful at the time, but at least you have hope. I'm very good friends with Emma now. Um, We take the boys out together often. Uh, as a four. Uh, We even, until this year, um, used to go on holiday with them all the time. Um, I've got a place up in Derbyshire, very near, about two miles from where I'm going tonight, uh, and I'm going to see them tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, and they're going to have half term with me. That's what's important now. Not how much money I don't have, or anything else like that. Spending time with the boys. I want to tell you as well about the recovery course, a course that you've been running here for a few years, a course that starts here on the 5th of November. Um, I was looking for something else um, where I could, as a Christian, not just talk about a God of my own understanding or a higher power. I could actually talk about God. 
uh, and the anonymous fellowships, all of them, AA or GA or NA, whoever it might be, in order to bring people in, it's important that we talk about a God of our own understanding or a higher power. But those fellowships are based on the 12 steps that were originally written by two Christian pastors back in the 1930s. And the recovery course is a course that we run for 15 sessions where we can talk about God openly. And we can say, if you really want long-term, lasting recovery, you need a relationship with your creator. So let's just go through one more if we can. That sword came back after three years. Someone found it online uh, and they googled my name. They thought, oh, it's a sword of honour. No, no one would sell a sword of honour. Um, and when they saw my name, they googled, googled it. And you get quite a lot of stuff if you google my name. Uh, and they found a newspaper that had run my story, got in contact with them. I don't know if you can see the Christmas decoration there on the door, but it came back to me um, in, a, in a FedEx box on Christmas Eve, three years after it had been away. I spent Christmas Day looking at it over the fireplace. Um, and that meant so much to me. And the restoration that God has done has been wonderful. The recovery course um, is something that I got involved with when I was looking for um, a Christ-based recovery course. Um, it's a course that was running at Holy Trinity Brompton and another um, wide range of other places. Um, but when the author of the recovery course left HDB, I didn't want that recovery course to disappear. So I got together with some friends and we formed a charity called Recovery 2. And I think we're going to be talking about Recovery 2 later. Um, recovery 2 is quite simply a charity that offers the recovery course to churches. It runs a conference every year. That was the 2017 conference. And Bob, where are you, my friend? Bob was um, at this year's conference um, where we were talking about a whole range of things, offering the course um, to, to a wide range of churches. There were 30 churches represented there at the recovery course, and they're springing up all over the place, and not just in the UK, but in Toronto, in Canada, in, in um, Australia, in South Africa, and America. People are running the recovery course. 15-session course. It's always run by a church group because it puts Christ back into the, reco the recovery process. So it's not for everyone, but it's helped so many people. On Tuesday this week, the course we're running down in Tunbridge, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is coming to visit us and to take part in, in a live recovery um, meeting. He's going to join one of the groups. Uh, we're doing session five, um, which, step five, which is all about forgiveness um, and actually confessing all those resentments that we've held onto really tightly. And he's going to talk about that. And we're looking forward to that coming very much. The recovery course is my passion now. And I feel honoured that I'm involved in it. It needs to be run by people who've come through the tunnel of addiction and out the other side. And it's something that just says, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to get alongside you and tell you that I've been where you are and I want to help. I want to finish now with um, a story of... Um, can we go through to the next slide? That's the TEDx talk I was talking about. Yeah, and again, I don't know if you can see that. That's a big ferry going across to France, and that's my arm. What on earth is my arm and a ferry doing about this story? Well, when I came through uh, and decided that I wanted to stop, I had very little self-esteem. I thought, I've made such a mess of things. All my life I pretended, I pushed God away, taken a thousand steps away from him. But at that time I realised I only needed to take one step back. And he was right there. 
I wanted some way of being able to try and get my self-esteem back, so I'd begun to swim. Why can't I just swim a couple of lengths up and down, I might hear you say, instead of volunteering for the world's most arduous endurance swim? 33 kilometres in a straight line, I might add, across two of the busiest shipping lanes in the world and some of the worst currents off that French coast. Didn't actually tell me about those currents until it was a bit late. That shot is taken. It's a GPS track of me 10 hours into my swim. Just before I set off, I said to my pilot, who had a safety boat, um, he'd been getting people across the channel for 27 years uh, and knew how to navigate. He knew all the waters and he knew all the shipping channels. So I said to him, one bit of advice can you give me before I set off? And he looked at me and he said, Justin, all you have to do is stay close to the boat. I'll get you across. That shot has taken 10 hours into the swim. And you might ask, why am I not going in a straight line? Well, it was, I actually did my swim on the day of the year that had one of the highest tidal reaches. So I was whipped up the coast and then whipped back down. And my pilot's job here, if you look closely, was to get me around the back of that little bit of France that's sticking out, um, Cap Grenet. Uh, and the idea was that when the tide changed, I'd make landfall. But I didn't know any of that. And when that shot was taken, 10 hours in, something catastrophic happened. I saw France. And I suddenly thought, that's it, I've made it. Look, it looks so close. I know where I'm going now. Oh, I can head for that. There's a nice building over there. I'll swim to that beach over there in a straight line. And off I went. And all the time, my boat was moving further away from me. I couldn't understand why they were doing that. I knew where I was going. And then it got dark. And the the wind picked up. I had a 14 knot wind. And the reason the boat was going that way is because there was a four and a half knot tide. And he knew he had to get me round the back of Cap Grenet. And me going in a straight line for the nearest port of, a point in France meant I was heading to Belgium. But I was being stubborn. And I thought I knew best. I couldn't understand why the boat was going the wrong way. I was getting cold. With the waves, I was taking on salt water. My throat was closing up. My tongue was expanding. I was struggling to breathe. And if I'm really honest, I began to question whether I'd ever make it or not. And all the time, they were calling me back. Come back to the boat. And then a light came on by the side of the boat, shone down in the little patch of water where I'd been all day. And I suddenly realised, they want me to swim there. I don't know why, but I'm going to do it. And I went back. And when I got to this patch of light, I got shelter from the wind in the lee of the boat. And the wave, they were still there, but this time when I turned my head, I could see the waves coming and I duck and I stopped taking on salt water. I got a triple strength carb feed. They encouraged me. And I got to France. In 12 hours 40. That's just like my life. When I go off thinking I know best, doing my own thing, Things go quite spectacularly wrong. But when I'm living my life in the light, where my creator wants me to be, he takes me on the perfect journey to the place, the best. I want to leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. Justin, thank you very much. We've got um, uh, uh, time for questions now. Um, uh, they can be about uh, your story. They can be about 
society and gambling, anything. Uh, we're talking now to um, one of the government's advisors on gambling, so it's not just telling the story, it's uh, about uh, other issues as well. Mm. There are microphones on either side, and uh, can they uh, stand up there? And uh, if anybody uh, would like to ask a question, they just indicate... Um, there's one for Karen there. It just is there anyone on this side here? Just okay. Just put your hand up uh, when you would like to ask a question. How on earth do we get the ability to cancel online gambling adverts on TV? <laughs> just how can we get together to do something about it? Okay, it's a wonderful question. And if you don't mind, I will lead into um, a, a little bit more about the facts and figures of the gambling industry. Um, we remember this is a £16 billion industry in the UK, so it's huge money. It's an industry which is consolidating. They're buying each other out. It's an industry where the richest businesswoman in the UK heads up a, a, a gambling company based in Stoke. Um, it's an industry um, where it's been driven by two things, the proliferation of advertising, Advertising in real terms since 2007, when the laws were liberalised, has gone up by a factor of about 1,400%. Um, so much more advertising on TV now than there ever has been before. The second thing that coincides with that is smartphone technology. And it means now it is so easy. I would love to see a whistle-to-whistle. -whistle. Actually, the Labour government, bless them, are calling for this. Um, they're, they're, they're calling for a whistle-to-whistle -whistle ban on advertising that says... You can't advertise around a sports match. If that happened, people in their, this country would get their love of sport back. Because instead of supporting the team that they've got a bet on, they'll start supporting the team that they grew up loving. And I would love to see that. I'd like to see a proper watershed. It's possible that it might happen, but government will only do something if they have evidence. And unfortunately at the moment, most of the research into problem gambling is funded by the gambling industry. So the truth's not really going to come out. Um, and that's my worry. My, my key worry is for young people. Can I just share a quick story about my son, aged seven years old? So Matthew, who featured there in that story, by the way, the day he walked was the best day of my, of my life, um, but very autistic, and that's what shows itself. He's passionate, or was passionate when he was seven, actually still is, when he was seven years old about a game called Roller Coaster Tycoon. It's a, it's a game where you build a funfair and people come to visit. You get money for the more people that visit. And the more money you get, the better rides you can get. And he was on his iPhone. I could hear the Roller Coaster Tycoon music. But when I looked, he was on a fruit machine, seven years old. And one of the things you can do, I discovered, is to build a casino. And you can learn the rules of roulette. You can learn the rules of a blackjack. You can learn how to play a fruit machine and learn risk and reward. And I can tell you what, that there's more reward than risk when they play those games. And I did some research into Roller Coaster Tycoon, and it might not surprise you if I tell you that that bit of software, that game, is owned by a gambling company based in Las Vegas. I think our children are being normalised to behaviour patterns. And the advertising is part of that, because what it says is gambling isn't risky. Gambling's just a bit of fun. And when I go into a school and I ask them to put their hand up and tell me or press a button, I've got some interactive technology to say um, how many of you have got a gambling app on your smartphone. Age 16, age 17, it's scary how, number of, how many of them already do. 
So that was a horribly long uh, answer to your, your question. How do we do it? You can get behind uh, organisations like CARE, um, which are great lobbyists. Uh, the Salvation Army, great lobbyists. They will always try and act for the problem gambler. I'm not anti-gambling. 75% of all, ad- of, of all adults in this country gamble. 40% of all adults in this country have had a bet in the last four weeks. And that's such a high proportion, it's a small percentage of people that go on to develop a pathological addiction. But because it's such a big number of gamblers, you've got about 450,000 pathological gamblers and another 3.5 million at risk. And by the way, those are industry figures. So you can maybe take those with a pinch of salt. So my heart is for the problem gamblers, and we need measures in place that will protect them. Simple things like asking your bank not to, tran- not to process a transaction if it's with a gambling company because you want to stop gambling. Um, they'd be so easy to do. It wouldn't cost anything and would go to the heart the problem gambler. Mm. I promise not to have such a long answer to the next question. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, I told you uh, uh, just before we uh, met that uh, uh, Surrey Heath is reviewing its policy on uh, licensing of uh, gambling um, and gaming uh, places. What, what do you think we should be looking for in there locally uh, to discourage um, improper gambling? Um, local councils have quite a lot of powers, um, particularly in the establishment of, of new gambling premises. But um, uh, this might sound quite radical. I don't think gambling companies will be investing in high street betting shops much more. Because the, the government has announced that it's going to reduce the maximum stake on the fixed odds betting terminals, the, the FOBTIs, from £100 down to 2 which actually is great news if your issue was going into those... And sadly, those shops are often in the high streets in some of the most run-down areas. Mm. And a problem gambler is one that will be spending £100 every 20 seconds on the spin of a wheel. Mm. Why the government can't do it now instead of 2020, uh, I don't know, but they've committed to do that. What that means is that... of all the revenue for the betting shops comes from those terminals. And they're they're limited to four terminals per shop because they are up to nine times more addictive than other forms of gambling. That's why you'll see two William Hills next door to each other or two branches of corals next door to each other. It means they can get eight fob team machines in. But I think we'll see a change because when that minimum stake goes down, to maximum stake goes down to two pounds, people will start gambling in private online which actually could even be more dangerous. Mm. Mm. Um, I tell you what, to encourage some debates, I will give a free copy of my book, Tales I Lose, signed, devalued, but signed, (laughs) to the best question from now on. So please, (laughs) let's have some debate. You can ask me anything. You can even ask me another question if you want. Okay, and you've got competition here because this lady's asked two questions and she's got the two best questions so far. Um, the government make about 555 million, um, 100 million um, per, per year um, in, in gambling tax revenue. Um, and they thought that's great, you know, this is good. And actually, I think that was the reason why the gambling laws were, were liberalised in 2007. In December 2016, a study was released, commissioned by 
government to look at the net cost to the nation of problem gambling. And that figure ranged anywhere from about 600,000 up to 1.1 billion. So if you think about those people who are going to prison because of their, the thefts that they've committed to feed their crime, um, the, the issues with broken homes um, and um, everything else related to problem gambling, uh, all the welfare issues that it causes... Um, the government has realised, actually, there is a net cost to this. And I think they are beginning to do something. The problem is, that £16 billion industry I talked about, the voice, the pro-gambling voice, is very, very strong. Mm. And there are some very clever legal minds that will argue all the reasons in the world why the government shouldn't change the status quo. And sadly, it's not until we hear about people jumping off the... PricewaterhouseCooper roof in the city or things like that that capture the headlines for a bit that people are outraged. Or they're outraged because they've watched the, the World Cup and every advert they're watching is a, is a gambling advert. And then things go quiet and the pro-gambling lobby will go back into Westminster and whisper in their ear. And I'm sure that 2020, uh, introducing that minimum stake because they said to them, look, it's going to significantly change our industry, so give us a bit of leeway and give us a few years to get things right. Yes, a question there at the back. Okay, Tim. Wow, that is that is a great question, and it's actually quite hard for me to answer that. Um, I would say, and um, what I'll do is I'll turn it round a bit. I'll say, what happens if any of you are worried about someone? You think maybe. She will have noticed that I'd begun to get secretive about what I was looking at online. She will have noticed that I probably would have been less honest about things. She would have noticed my mood swings. She would have noticed um, that I was losing interest in the things that I used to love doing, like gardening. She'd have noticed that I would have staying, was staying up later and not going to bed when she went to bed. She would have noticed that I would volunteer to do stuff that might be a bit unusual. And she probably did notice those things, but I guess she would have put them down to something else. So if any of you ever think, I'm worried about this person, don't confront them in a judgmental way. But don't dodge the issue either. Go and have a word with them. Talk to them. And just say, is there something that you, you, know, you want to talk about? I notice that you spend quite a lot of time on your phone. Uh, are, you, are you gambling? How much time are you spending? How much money are you spending? And it might be that that person is just so happy to open up. Or they might just completely clam up and go into denial and say, no, no, it's nothing. If that happens, you can't push it. Great question there. I like that one too. Thank you. I don't shout like Tim. And, uh, and this, uh, this question so certainly won't qualify for the book. Are there any gender differences... Is it particularly a male thing, or is it female, or is it just the same? No, I, I, that's a great question, because I don't want the females to sit there in the audience thinking, oh, it's not an issue for me. Uh, the truth is that it is probably something that does affect men more than others. But, you know, I talked about bingos being allowed on TV during the day. For, for a lot of women um, who perhaps are... They're the ones that look after the family finances. Um, they might be at home during the day more often than their husbands. Um, and they might respond a bit more to the social aspect or the perceived social aspect of gambling. Uh, and the messages coming through are, come on, join the bingo 
fun. It's great. You know, you'll, we're all a bunch of friends together and it's wonderful. Amazing, colourful slots. Uh, and, and sadly, I know of occasions when people have had a knock at the door at two o'clock in the afternoon from uh, someone offering um, coupons if they'll sign up to a bingo site. Um, it, it, and I know so many ladies who this has affected uh, and it's really quite horrible when that happens and how alone they feel and how isolated they feel. The complete opposite of what the advertising tells them. So it's not only an issue for men. It's not only an issue for young people, although if you are 16 to 23, you are three times more likely to have a problem with gambling. Do you know, if you're 17 to 23 in this country, you're th- more likely to bet on football than actually to play it now. And that's scary for me. But it's young and old, male, female. It doesn't discriminate. Uh, <coughs> Heidi has a question, but, but uh, just follow on from this. Is there a, um, a, a wealth profile or is there a uh, social class profile of the typical gambler? Um, no. Again, it will affect anyone. So at the top end, you've got Carluccio. Um, you know the restaurant chain, Carluccio. He was an Italian chef. He lost that chain because he had an addiction to on uh, to casinos and spent millions lost millions in casinos and then right down at the other end of the spectrum uh you, you've got someone who will spend uh, for example your, your great your great example there of, of the, the the lottery in in america such a high percentage of income being spent on uh, you know scratch cards and, and lotto and um, quick story, um, there, there was a lady when uh, I was in recovery who, I still am by the way, I always will be, um, there was a lady who was a, in the queue ahead of me in the post office and uh, I, I had to do a double take. She got to the post office, she was with a young child, she just got her gyro check from the post office counter and then she asked for 20 Benson and Hedges and 250 scratch cards. And I'm convinced that she would have been thinking over the last few days about how she was going to spend all that money and buy her child that pair of trainers and give her mum some money as well and actually completely deluding herself about the odds and the likelihood of being able to win that Mm. and the risks that she was taking. Mm. Um, My my son-in-law is Gamblers Anonymous and his father is was is gamblers anonymous is there anything in the genes great question great by the way i need someone else to independently decide about who we should award the book to because i i don't know i simon you're very well placed yeah i just asked two questions didn't i oh yeah you did (laughs) (laughs) um uh, do you know what i'm quite often asked this question is it generic um, I often have the privilege of going into professional rugby clubs and one of my favourite rugby clubs in, in the Premiership, I went to do a talk and, and a very well-known player who's just come back into the England side came up to me and he said, I'm aware that my dad was an alcoholic. Have I got to watch out? And I, I said to him, I think the reason why you are so driven, the reason why you are so successful is because you have your certain gene set. But watch out. Because if you stop playing rugby, you get injured, you'll still crave that buzz. You'll still be driven for a thrill. And the reason you're so successful, if you start looking for that in other places, be very, very careful. I do believe 
Yeah, not just because your your one of your parents was an alcoholic doesn't by any means that means that you will be a, an addict. Um, but I do think that it's possibly more likely that if you have a certain character type and your parents shared that certain character type, that you may well be more susceptible. I think there was one at the back and then another one before that. Yes. Yeah. Oh my word, I'm in a church and I'm talking about the National Lottery. This is tricky. So Recovery 2, as a charity, was offered a grant by the National Lottery. And I think that the National Lottery do wonderful things. I think they have transformed uh, British Olympic sports. Um, I took a decision as the chief exec of our charity that we weren't going to take that money. And all my trustees were cross with me. And, and I think for someone else's conscience, it's perfectly fine. And if you've had your roof fixed recently by a grant from the National Lottery, that's not a problem. However, I do know that for many people, scratch guards particularly are dangerous. Here's the thing. The problem gambler is expecting to win. And I can remember doing the lottery, and I knew what the odds were. But I was expecting to win. And I was one of those people that would be thinking in the nights before what I'm going to spend that money on. And I was surprised when my numbers didn't come up. And that would encourage me to go out and buy more tickets. A problem gambler going into a betting shop with £20 um, will be surprised if they don't win. And they'll go around the corner to the cash point and keep going. If they do win, they think, great, I'm on a winning streak, I'll keep going. Eventually, they'll empty out their bank account because of the way that the odds are stacked in favour of the table. Anyone who gambles normally, which is most people, They'll go with their £20, and if they lose, they'll think, oh, that hurt, and walk away. Or if they win, they'll think, great, I'm £20 the richer. So the lottery can be quite destructive for people who are problem gamblers. However, what I would say, it is probably the least addictive form of gambling. It might be a gateway, but I don't think it is. I think the gateway now is um, football multiples for smartphones for for young people. Um, I'd say that the National Lottery is fine, but not for me. Mm. I would never play. Is there a question? Um, do you talk to your boys now about your gambling addiction? Uh, brilliant, yes. Um, I do, uh, to my eldest son. Now, you might wonder, why was I speaking to a 12-year-old when I had two young sons and he said he had three sons? Um, it's complicated. It's all in the book. But I have an older son called Harry, who now is 17. Um, he, as far as I'm aware, is very anti-gambling. Uh, and I've never had that conversation with him that, to say, I don't want you to gamble. I couldn't. As a parent, I wouldn't be able to do that. Very, very difficult. What's the first thing your children are going to do if you say you can't do something and all their friends are doing it? Yeah. You, as parents, we can put all kinds of blocks on our computers when we're at home, but you know they'll go outside and they'll get Wi-Fi. And... So... Um, Oscar and Matthew Oscar's seven, eight now Matthew's ten and Matthew will never, will never be an issue for him for Oscar he's incredibly competitive he's the one I'm going to need to watch but he's only eight so it's a bit early um, Harry um, yes I, I will never try and preach to him but I'm also very honest about what happened to me Harry, bless him, has been to groups like this where he's heard me talk and he knows the whole story. I've not held anything back from him. Mm. Let's have two more questions then. 
one down here. And uh, let's just, uh, who's the last one? Second row. I'm going to give it to the lady down here because you've already had one. So. But please come and ask me afterwards, <laughs> and I promise you I'll, I'll talk to you. Yeah, okay. Um, as a general practitioner, I can confirm that uh, we get a lot of training on um, uh, alcohol and, uh, and drugs, but actually none on gambling at all. Mm. Um, you implied that you didn't get a very good response from the general practitioner. What, what would you have liked to have seen? Um, What I would say is I I think that the medical profession now uh, and counselling is a lot more sophisticated than it it was, even just a few years ago. Um, There are only two places you can go to, and this is why I think Gamma's Anonymous is is so so powerful and so effective for a lot of people. There are only places that your GP could refer you, two places your GP could refer you to. One is a a clinic, a day clinic in, in Fulham. Um, and one is a residential clinic up in Edgbaston, but you can imagine Places Unlimited. I speak to the lady, the, the psychologist that runs that, that day clinic in Fulham. Um, she sees 2,000 people a year. She said she could see three times that number quite happily and has to turn people away. Um, I personally don't believe that the national health should be burdened with this. I think w- what we should see is a compulsory levy on the industry. Um, at the moment, the gambling industry, through a voluntary contributions uh, not every company, by the way, but a, many of them will pay into a pot. It's about £10 million that they pay, which doesn't go even close to dealing with this issue. And it's a tiny percentage of that £16 billion revenue. Um, so I'd like to see a compulsory levy on the industry so that there's proper provision. And then that can feed other sites. And then GPs can realistically be able to refer people. And then there can be um, a, a broadening of the, the interventions and the treatment that, go, that, that goes on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, like that. I like that question. And thanks for not putting me down saying, actually, you know, it's just my experience. Mine's just a simple question, really. Um, can you tell me, did you actually have to pay the kind soul who gave you the sword back? <laughs> um, yes, but I, mean, I had this conversation with someone else tonight. Um, I, so what I, I got was a website. They gave me a tip-off for a website. I went to the website and saw it was for sale. It was £600. And frankly, I would have paid £6,000 if I'd had £6,000 to, to get it back. So I just said to them, oh, uh, just, just tell me what the price is for that. I'm quite interested. In. And when he told me the price, I said to him, great, I will pay you that. Um, actually, that was my sword with my name on it. Um, and he was so lovely, rather than saying, right, I'm going to charge you triple now, um, he arranged for it to be FedEx down the next day. And some wonderful friends from my church all chipped in. at a time when I didn't have very much, and they all chipped in and, and bought my sword, my sword back. Great, great. I'm still thinking about the best question, so I'll... It's tricky. <laughs> Perhaps you can award it to someone while they're, while they're over coffee. What do you think of the odds of that uh, getting it right? <laughs> I wouldn't dare to guess. Okay, we're going to draw to a close now, but uh, you see on the screen there are two uh, books that um, Justin is far too modest to commend himself, but uh, Justin, if we can only afford one of them... Uh, just tell us about the the different approaches. The okay. First of all, the red covered one. So the the red one really is ri- is written for Christians, um, and it's for those uh, who have habits 
um, either um, themselves or for someone else that, that they love. Um, it's written as a very practical book where you can dip into, read a chapter on a whole range of things, um, and it's very practical. It's my own experience. Right. Right. Uh, Tales um, is my story, but it's my story from start to finish. Uh, and Tales I Lose was the, the leading book on gambling addiction, the, the best-selling book on gambling addiction on Amazon um, when it was published in, in June 2014 um, for about a year. Um, and if it, it just goes into the story that you've heard today in a bit more detail. It's one you could read cover to cover, uh, and it's one that you perhaps would give to a gift um, to someone who might you might suspect might have an issue or not. Um, but we're doing both for 15... 15 pounds. Um, or I think they're 10 each. Yeah. There you go. And any profits will go to... Recovery Recovery 2. Yes. Uh, And uh, this is an event which we uh, don't charge people for. Uh, We're very happy to have you here, but we do also like to relieve you of any weight you have in your pockets. So as you leave... Uh, there will be the opportunity for you to contribute and uh, uh, all the funds that are raised by that will go to Recovery 2. Now, Recovery 2 runs these recovery courses and I I guess we ought to make it plain it's not just people recovering from gambling because what you've said about this addiction has got so many parallels with any other addiction that there is. And uh, although uh, Justin is... uh, indiscreet by telling you uh, uh, the people who are going to be attending next Tuesday's meeting in Tunbridge Wells these are all anonymous apart from the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, who's quite uh, prepared to uh, uh, let his weakness be known so uh, we have our own recovery course that's being uh, run here by one of our uh, members Uh, it's a 15 week course Uh, The uh, emphasis is that uh, nobody else knows uh, who's going. If you're going, uh, you're entirely uh, free or whoever uh, you you might uh, suggest this to is entirely free to go and there's complete anonymity um, and you are able to convey as much of your problem or as little as your problem um, as you choose. So there are leaflets of that that are available. Uh, there are also. D- does it cost any more if I buy these and they get a signed version of it? You know, like rather like the Sword of Honor. You know, having your name inside it. I think the value goes down when I sign okay, it. Okay, right. <laughs> but I'll sign it for you anyway. <laughs> well, Justin, I've really um, enjoyed and been touched by what you had to say. Thanks, it's fantastic to have you here, and I'm going to ask people to show their appreciation in the usual way. There are two exits, but we hope you'll only use one this evening, which is the one this way, because there's refreshments.